The following audio is from River City Baptist Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information, visit us online at rivercityrichmond.org. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now, and I will speak. I will question you, and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him twice as much as he had before. All his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. They comforted and consoled him over all the trouble the Lord had brought on him, and each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the former part. He had 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 donkeys. And he also had seven sons and three daughters. The first daughter he named Jemima, the second Kazia, and the third Karen Hapak. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters. And their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. After this, Job lived 140 years. He saw his children and their children to the fourth generation. And so Job died an old man full of years. Well, good morning. Thank you, Heather. Heather used to be one of our own up in Delray, and uh, she met in the crew down here. Um, just a token of our love. We, Delray Baptist Church, has been praying for this church before it even started. Matt was telling me about some of his dreams years ago about coming up to this area. Began praying for him and for what God might do here. And I just want to say on behalf of, of, of Delray Baptist, it's, it's an honor to be here with you, to see what God has done and is doing and we trust will continue to do. So uh, please receive our, our love and just know uh, we, we pray for you all often. In light of that, we're going to pray once more now, uh, ask God for help in both the proclaiming and the receiving of his word. Father in heaven, we come before you right now and thank you for the good work that you're doing in our midst. Lord, thank you for my brother Matt, thank you for his family, thank you for uh, the other brothers and sisters here so dear to me and, and new friends. Father, we ask that you would help us now. Lord, we ask that you would you would guard us from just being religious people who are doing religious stuff on a day that we should do that kind of stuff. We pray that you would meet us now and that by your Spirit, you would, you would give us eyes to see your Word. You would give us ears to hear from you. You would give us minds that understand what you say. You would give us hearts that believe it. Would you give us affections that are warmed 
wills that are surrendered and bodies that are ready to do whatever You would call us to do. Father, we pray particularly for those who are suffering this morning, that You might meet them in the midst of their misery and assure them that You, you see them and that You are not cruel, but You are wise and good even when we can't see it. So, Father, would You help us to have eyes to see today. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, in this room, there's people from all sorts of different backgrounds, right? Different nationalities represented, uh, different levels of education, different levels of economic situations. There's different political affiliations. There's all kinds of things that are different about us this morning. But there's one thing that every human whoever lives on this planet will have in common. That's suffering. Everyone on this planet will suffer. Some of you have already suffered very much. Maybe it's a recent season, or maybe if you're honest, it feels like it's the only season you've ever known. Maybe some of you have, have suffered very little in God's kindness. But it's coming. No one escapes suffering in this life. Maybe it's the betrayal of a friend. Somebody who just hurt you in a way that you never thought they could. Maybe some of you have been abandoned by someone who had promised that they never would do that. Maybe some of you have been abused. Someone who shouldn't have hurt you hurt you in ways you still today feel just racked with the pain and suffering of. Maybe it's financial hardship. No matter how hard you try, you just can't seem to, to get to a place that it's not constantly haunting you. Maybe some of you even, even started coming to this church because it was a new church plant hoping for friends and just as it's grown, you just still feel lonely. Maybe it's Maybe it's marriage. It started so sweet, but it is so hard. Or maybe you just always wanted to be married, and it hasn't happened. Maybe it's a miscarriage. That secret suffering that just seems so mysterious. Why would God allow that? Maybe it's your body that just doesn't work like it's supposed to anymore. could go around this room and fill books with the sorts of sufferings that are just in here. Nobody escapes suffering in this life. One of the most important questions, though, that you must wrestle with is do you believe that it happens for a reason? Now, the world will say that. The world will say everything happens for a reason. But they don't know why. But for the Christian, the Christian, the Christian needs to believe that there is meaning in misery. And the reason why is because there is a God. And that there is a God who uses everything, including every painful thing, for good and glorious purposes that are beyond our ability to fathom. 
I think if there's any book that helps us to wrestle with that, it's the book of Job. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to ask that you turn with me to the book of Job. We'll be in the last chapter of the book of Job. Job Job 42. In case you're not familiar with the story, the first two chapters of the book of Job, we meet a man named Job. And he's he's a good man. He's not a perfect man. There's only one of those who's ever lived. His name is Jesus. But Job is is said to be a a, a good man. He's blameless. He's upright. He turns away from evil. He fears God in all things. Yet, for some mysterious reason, God gave Satan permission to afflict Job. And Satan did just that. Two waves of brutal attacks came against Job, and it stripped him of everything. His fame, his fortune, his his family, his health, his ten children, dead. Complete devastation. All the while, Satan's saying, Job's going to curse God, you just watch. But that's not what happened. Rather, Job responded as, as all of us wished we would in those sorts of circumstances. He says, the Lord gave and the Lord Take it away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then after those first two chapters, Job drug himself out to the city dump known as the ash heap. It's where you burn trash. And there he sat. Heart heavy. Body broken. Sores seeping. Eyes weeping. And then three friends arrive. They come to show sympathy and to comfort him. And they do that. For seven days. But then after seven days, the silence is broken and they begin to, to speak. And that's where things begin to unravel a bit. A conversation takes place in chapters 3 through 31 where Job's friends begin to accuse Job of having some sort of secret sin that God is punishing him for. Righteous people don't suffer like this, Job. Everybody knows bad things don't happen to good people. Job argued back with them. He argued his innocence. And he even began to accuse God of treating him wrongly. He even says, God has made me his enemy. You know, if you're ever tempted to feel justified to be angry at God and to accuse him of something, it's when you're suffering. Job fell into that trap. Well, near the end of the book, in the arguments, a guy named Elihu shows up on the scene. He's the young buck. And he says, actually, you're both wrong. Job's friends, you're wrong because you've accused Job of of suffering because of his sin. But that's not what happened. And then he says, Job, you're wrong too. Why? Because of what Job said about God. Job accused God of treating him wrongly. You see, Job was not suffering because he sinned. But he did sin while he was suffering. He justified himself at God's expense. Said, you did me wrong, God. And then after Elihu's done, God comes on the scene. It says, a storm rolls in. Job had requested an appointment with the Almighty so he could set things straight. Well, he got it. And in chapter 38 through 41, God asks 40 rhetorical questions that all basically center around, where were you, Job, 
Where were you when I made the world? Were you there? No, you weren't, Job. And God used that, that question session to, to meet Job where he was and to teach him some essential truths that we see, I think, come to fruition in chapter 42. If you want to summarize this, this whole lesson of what God has taught Job and which Job speaks of here in 42, it's something like this. God uses suffering to shape your faith and to strengthen your hope in Him. God uses suffering to shape your faith and to strengthen your hope in Him, which you've got to know in a room full of suffering people, suffering will either push you away from God or will push you to Him. It's going to push you. And God has given this word to help us to know which way to lean. Into Him, not away from Him. It's going to unfold in three scenes. The first is verses 1 through 6, where we're going to see that God refined Job's faith. God refined Job's faith. Listen again, verse 1. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, and he's quoting God here, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Job says, surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, quoting God again, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer to me. Job's reply, my ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job's faith had begun strong. He had worshipped God when all was well, and he worshipped God when all was lost. But as minutes turned into hours, and hours turned into days, and days turned into weeks, and weeks turned into chapter 7, verse 3, months of emptiness, Job's faith began to struggle. I'm not implying in any way that Job lost his faith. I actually think his darkest moments serve as a good example of how to keep praying. It's one of the things you'll notice about Job all the way through. He keeps talking to God, which is what you must do in the midst of your sufferings. Even the psalm that was read for us by Garrett this morning, Psalm 13. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? Can you talk like that to God? Yes, you can. And when you're suffering, you need to. Keep crying out. And Job did that. But, but as Job looked to God and saw nothing and listened for God and heard nothing, his faith was strained. He began to doubt things that he had never doubted before. Has God made me his enemy? Has he forgotten me? Has he forsaken me? Have you left me to die alone? With these guys yelling at me? You see, suffering tempts us to wonder if God still loves us. This is why Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5 assures us, My son, do not be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one that he loves. God loved Job. That never changed all the way through the book. And it's interesting that God actually loved Job enough that he was going to use the pain and affliction in his life to refine his faith so that 
Job could know God more. Verse 1 again, I I know that you can do all things. No plans of yours can be thwarted. You see, before all of this, Job knew generally that God was sovereign. He He would have been able to teach that in a class. He would have been able to affirm that on a test. But through the trial, he had to learn it. There's a difference between knowing it and knowing it. Job had to learn that God wasn't just sovereign generally, but He is sovereign and purposeful over everything, including every ounce of your pain. And through that, Job was was learning that he didn't need to fear while he was in the pit of despair because God's arm is never too short to save. But it could reach him even there. Job is learning that that God could stop his suffering at any time and that if God did not, it is because God who loved him had more to, to give him out of it. Which makes no sense to us. But it does to God. A God who Romans 8.28 assures us that works all things. He works all. For the, all things for the good of those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. God, Job is learning that God can use evil, every evil, even evils that happen to him, natural disasters, terrorist attacks, death, death of, of children, 10 of them, loss of health. All of those happen to him. That God can use all of those things to bring about a good end. See, one of the things that we must know and must rest in and be assured of is that all of our afflictions are wisely prescribed by the great physician. This is not simply a matter of of theology. It is a matter of survival. That if you don't believe that God rules over all of your suffering, you must answer the question, then who does? Is it just the universe? Is it Satan who's in charge? It's very evident in the book of Job, Satan is not in charge. Charles Spurgeon said this, It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me. That the bitter cup was never filled by His hand. That my trials were never measured out by Him in their weight and quantity. One of the things that all of us must learn to believe is that nothing comes into our lives that does not pass through the hands of a good God who purposes all things, even evil things, for our good and His glory. Now to be very clear, God never does evil. God only ever does good. Anything that happens to you, God is using for your good. Not all things are good, but He works all things together for the good. That means that God can take every wicked thing that some evil person purposes against you or has done to you, that God, what they intended for evil, God can use it for good. Genesis 50-20, it's what, it's what Joseph boasted in at the end of his life. What you intended for evil, God meant for good. 
God only ever does good to His children. He's not a bad father. He's a good father. He's a loving father. He's a wise father who only ever is caring for you in the midst of many things that aim to harm you. And Job needed to know that. He would have known that because it's the right answer. But he was beginning to know it. Not just with ears, but with eyes. Experiencing it and believing it. You see, Job came to realize that he didn't know what God knew. That was what those 40 questions were about. Where were you, Job? Is it possible that if you don't know answers to how mountain goats have babies, that maybe you don't know what's happening in the unseen world? If you've never been down to the bottom of the Mariana Trench, 36,000 feet, to see the lanternfish at the bottom of the ocean, Job, do you think that there might be things in the heights of the heavens that you don't understand either? If you weren't there when I set the whole thing up and began this, Job, do you think it's possible that there's things that you might not know? And God was not being mean to him and just putting him in his place and shut up, Job. It was not how it was. That's how we can read it sometimes. It was a humble it was a humbling experience, which is a very loving thing for God to do. Because there's nothing like pain to make us sure that we're smarter than God. All of us have been tempted that way. Job says, surely, verse 3, I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me. God's questions had humbled Job and he had withdrawn his complaint against the Almighty because he realized one of life's most important lessons. God knows what we don't know and he sees what we don't see. And we can trust him. God knows what we don't know and sees what we don't see. And you can trust him. God sees the beginning to the end, and every single teardrop in between. There's a psalm that says that he catches all of your tears in a bottle. Gets every one. When nobody hears your crying, he hears it. He catches it. Book of Revelation talks about uh, at the end of, of all things, chapter 5, you've got bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. little speculation here, but pretty good speculation. Those are prayers that are yet unanswered. The prayers of, how long, O oh Lord? How long, how long? When will you fix this? When are you going to take this away? When's it going to end? And when the Lord Jesus returns, He says, prayers are about to be answered. And sometimes we see the resolution in this life, and sometimes we don't. I think God resolved some of it for Job to teach us about what's happening in the end. More on that in just a moment. You see, there were, Job says, what God knows are things too wonderful for me. Above our capacity to comprehend. Beyond our ability to, to alter. Out of our jurisdiction to judge. My wife Carrie, who sends her regrets, she's uh, hanging out with her, her mama. Uh, we're spending some time down there. She wanted to be here with you, but long story short, um, she, she had a very difficult father growing up he was very difficult to love um, he had seemed like a good father until 11 years old when he just decided to leave her and to leave the family and it, it broke Carrie's heart some of you know that very pain of a dad leaving and he went off and just lived a very wretched life 
And he, she was bitter against him for, for a while until she, she met a friend in college who was not a believer and her heart was broken for him to come to know the Lord. And then after that happened, God convicted her that she needed to be brokenhearted over her father's salvation. He may never be a dad to you, but can you care about his eternal destiny? And so she began to pray. And she prayed for 20 years, knowing that God had changed her heart because God was going to change his heart. And then we got a call that Mike had died. She hadn't talked to him for the last three days of his life. He, he could have well called out to the Lord. He certainly would have known who to call out with. We had had a lot of conversations with him about that. But apart from just mere hope and God's mercy, there's no reason to believe that Mike ever repented. And that confused my wife so much. She loves the Lord. But why would God do that? Why would God change my heart and arrange everything for me to plead and then you to let him die? It shook her faith. And when your faith is shaken, you need to fall upon the Scriptures, which is what she did. Psalm 131, it says, I do not concern myself with things too wonderful for me, but I have stilled and quieted my soul like a weaned child is my soul within me. After much wrestling and prayer, she, she learned that you, we don't have to wonder about things too wonderful for us. God, you know what I don't know, and I've got to trust you. Entrusting your souls to, to Him. And when we do that, as we wrestle and we cry and we cry out and we say, how long? And your eyes are up. Eventually what happens is verse 5. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. There's something that happens. You see, Job had endured his afflictions. He'd heard about God, but now the spiritual cataracts had been cut from his eyes through the trials in a way that he now knew God that he never could have apart from the trial. God took everything from Job so that, so that he could see God more clearly. And there's nothing more precious than beholding God in all of His sovereign and splendor, standing overing, over your, your sufferings, proclaiming, I am faithful my plans are wise. My purposes are perfect. I do not do this to, to, to destroy you. Trust me. I am good. I love you. I am doing something. Look to me. Hold on. That becomes more precious than anything else. It had for Job. And it led to him repenting. Verse 6, I despise myself and repent. Up until now, Job had felt justified in his complaint. He thought he could run the universe better than God, which all of us are tempted with. It's why God, I think, preserves it for us. Why many believe that Job is the first book of the Bible. Like, first one, like all of this is the first thing recorded for us. Job saw rightly that he was holy and wise, which made him see himself rightly, that he was sinful and, and foolish and didn't understand. Job had been put in his place because God had been put in his. 
You see, Job was not suffering because he sinned, but he did sin while he was suffering. And he now repented of that, and he pled for God to have mercy on him. He had, he had brought his complaints to God and confessed it. And you notice in all of this, what did God do about Job's sin? He drew near to Job. He didn't sit off over here and be like, hey, get it right, and when you do, I'll be over here waiting for you. That's not the God that we serve. He entered into his suffering. That's called grace. It's the gospel. It's what God does. He comes toward us in our suffering. He comes toward us in our sin. And where did he come to Job? While he sat on the ash heap. And when did he come to Job? At his worst hour. Job had not even repented yet when God came to him. Do you notice that? But God came anyway. And this is where Job's story points us to a greater story, to the story of Jesus. You see, all of us have treated God wrongly. All of us have sinned against Him. All of us in different ways have put our finger in His face and said, how dare you? And how does God respond? Romans 5.8 says, God demonstrates His own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus is the greater Job. He came to us while we were on the ash heap of our sin. Jesus, the truly blessed one, the truly righteous one, the, true, the one who never sinned, he, he came among us, and then He willingly went to another hill, not the ash heap of His own sin, but now the, the ash heap of, for our sin. And there He suffered, and there He died, and then He rose from the dead. Why? So the sinners like you and me could be forgiven. How? By beholding Him in all of His glory and seeing Him as a wonderful, merciful, benevolent Savior who loves to rescue sinners and sufferers like you and like me. You see, it's by faith that we believe and behold in Christ and we see God. But the only way that this happened for Job to truly see God was for God to take everything from him. So I guess my question for you is, would you be willing to lose everything if it meant that you could know God better? Would you be willing to lose everything if it meant you would get to know Him better? For those of you who are suffering right now, I'm not trying to trivialize this in any way. I just want you to know God wants to give you Himself, which is better than anything else that He can give you. He shows it in the person of Jesus as we see foreshadowed in the picture of Job. This brings us to then the second part of this story, chapter 42, verse 7 through 9, where we see that God reconciled Job's friends. So he refined Job's faith and now he employs him in ministry. <laughs> God reconciled Job's friends. Look at verse 7. After the Lord had said these things to Job, he said to Eliphaz the Temanite, I am angry with you and your two friends because you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So now take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and sacrifice a burnt offering for yourselves. My servant Job will pray for you and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. You have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite did what the Lord told them 
And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. So after God dealt graciously with Job, He dealt graciously with Job's friends. Now, if you read through chapter 3 through 31, how many of you have ever read the book of Job before? This is not shaming time. Okay, so how many of you, when you've ever gotten to 30, chapter 3 through 31, you're like, this is super confusing? Okay, yeah. It's, it's, it's kind of intended to be. I actually think in God's providence, He's designed the book like that. It's hard to sift between truth and error, and you just feel like it's going around and around, and we're having the same conversation about the same stuff, and it seems to just drag on and on and on. Which I think even in the reading of it, God is teaching us that He knows what suffering is like for us. It's hard and confusing. And sometimes people know what they're talking about and sometimes they don't. And there's truth and there's error coming at you all the time. And Job just continually is confused. But one of the things that we learn here is that judgment is not difficult for the Lord. God knows, I know exactly what's happening right here. You see, he sees and he sifts everything perfectly. This is why God calls Eliphaz, who was the oldest and the first to speak, to account. And when God says that Job has spoken rightly here, he's referring to Job's confession and repentance in chapter 42. He's not talking about that everything that Job has said up to this point was right. We've already seen that that's not true. But now Job has repented, and now God points back to that and says, My servant Job has spoken rightly. And God had extended forgiveness to him. But now Job's friends need forgiveness too. Because for 19 chapters, they had slandered God by saying that God was dealing with Job because of Job's sin. Making God out to be somebody that he wasn't. So as much as you can feel like, man, Job's friends are really sinning against Job... They were ultimately sinning against God, which is actually the exact opposite, right? So they're accusing Job of being a sinner, and that's why he was suffering. It's actually the exact opposite. God didn't afflict Job because he was unrighteous. Actually, he chose Job because he was righteous, and he knew that in him he would be able to display his glory through the suffering. Job's friends certainly sinned against Job. And hurt and offended him, but ultimately it was against God. This, by the way, is one of the important things to remember of our sin. Always go vertical. Remember against you and you only have I sinned. Well, there's a lot of strong irony here. So Eliphaz and his crew, they thought, they thought Job was in sin and being punished by God, but actually who was guilty? They were. They were the ones who were guilty before God because of sin. They were the ones who had stood over Job in judgment, but now they became the ones who needed Job to stand over them and extend forgiveness. God graciously warned them so that they could repent and escape judgment. This is why he commanded them to take seven bulls and seven rams and to bring them to Job so he can offer up a burnt offering and to ask Job to, to, to pray for them and to intercede for them. And Job did that, didn't he? He acted as an intercessor for them. Job isn't their savior here, but, but, but God tells Job's friends how they can be saved. In faith, they must bring an innocent animal to die in their place. And its flesh is going to be consumed like with fire as a picture of what would have happened to them had they not repented of their sin. That's how they get forgiveness, by 
Grace through faith, which by the way, this is how people are always saved in the Bible. People are not saved in the Old Testament a different way than they're saved in the New Testament. You're always saved by grace through faith in the one who is to come who is Christ. In the Old Testament, you're saved on credit, the one who would come. And in the New Testament, you're saved on debit, the one who did come and paid it all. It's always focused on Christ. He is the focus of which here we have this, these offerings which are a, a foreshadowing of that. And this scene foreshadows Jesus himself. Just as Job's self-righteous friends hurled insults at him, you'll remember Jesus was unjustly accused by a bunch of self-righteous religious people who hurled its, uh, uh, accusations at him of being um, against God. And just as Job was accused of suffering because God's hand was against him, so was, so was Jesus. The, the parallels here are supposed to be striking for the New Testament reader to see this and to say, Wow. Job looks just like Jesus here. He foreshadows him. We have these, these broken, beaten men outside the city, weeping, bleeding, appearing God was against them, but the reality that neither Job nor Jesus were on their hill because of their own sin, but because of their righteousness. God said of Job he was blameless, upright, feared him, of which Christ truly is. The one who had no sin, truly had no sin, always righteous, dying on the hill for you and for me. But, but Jesus didn't just perform an offering for his friends, but rather he became an offering for his enemies. Jesus is the greater Job. And then he rose up off of the ash heap, out of the grave, to Hebrews 7.25, ever lived to make intercession for us. Jesus is the hope of sinners and sufferers alike. So in this, we see that there is a place to go. So in the midst of your struggling against sin, keep fleeing to Christ who intercedes for you. He says, come boldly to the throne of grace that you may receive grace and a help in a time of need. So say if you're here this morning and you know yourself to not be a Christian, I want to tell you to be careful about the assumption that if you've had a very hard life, that God somehow owes you. That, that this idea, this nostalgia, that someday everything's just going to work out and be in a better place. I just want you to know, God cares very much about your suffering, and I would even say it is His providential mercy, His, His arranging of circumstances for you to be here this morning to hear this to let you know that he, he cares about you and loves you and has a way for you to be made right with Him. But I want to assure you that no matter how much someone suffers in this life, if they do not have their sins forgiven, through Christ and Christ alone, things do not get better when you die. There is actually judgment that awaits. Because though you've suffered, we've also sinned against the God who made us. This is a moment of mercy that He would say, turn to Him. Believe upon him. He wants to be your savior and draw you close and heal you. We'd love to talk to you about that after the service. The scene concludes in verses 10 through 17 where God restores Job's fortune. After Job had prayed for his friends, the Lord made him prosperous again and gave him twice as much as he had before. And all his brothers and sisters and everyone who had known him before came and ate with him in his house. And they comforted and consoled him all over all the trouble the Lord had brought upon him. And each one gave him a piece of silver and a gold ring. 
The Lord blessed the latter part of Job's life more than the first. He had 14,000 sheep and 6,000 camels and 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 donkeys. He also had seven sons and three daughters. First daughter, Jemima. The second, Kezia. Third, Karen, Hapak. Nowhere in all the land were there found women as beautiful as Job's daughters and their father granted them an inheritance along with their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and he saw his children and his children, children to the fourth generation. And so he died old and full of years. This final scene, God graciously restored Job. You see, God gave Job not just what he had, but exceedingly abundantly more than what he had before. Here we see his brothers and we see his sisters and other friends who in chapter 19 were estranged and had forgotten him are now reconciled back with him, sitting with him, showing sympathy and comfort and giving him gifts as a way to show honor to him. They're reconciled. Things have been made right. God also multiplied his livestock. I guess that's a lot of livestock. Uh, I don't know. I'm not an expert in that, but it seems like a lot. And God gave him more children, 10 more children. And three daughters who have legendary beauty, right? And he lived to see his great, great grandchildren. Can you imagine? Can you imagine how rich that discipleship was with Pop Pop Job? <laughs> He's just sitting around the fire, be like, Pop Pop Job, tell us about tell us about that day again. To watch his eyes well up to tell him about the Sabaeans and the Chaldeans and the storm. Tell him about all the, the of their you know, aunts and uncles they never got to, not to meet, but who were wonderful people. Tell him about the time God showed up. And I had to repent because I, I, I had charged God with so much wrong. And I learned that, that though there was a lot of stuff I didn't understand. He loved me. And he would just have lessons laced with gold for them about suffering and trials. You see, God doesn't waste anything. Some of you in this room, your discipleship is so rich with others because of the pain you've been through. I don't know this congregation as well as I know the one that I have the privilege of pastoring, but I, this morning I opened to one page of the membership directory, which I often do when I'm preparing the sermons just to get faces in front of me. And ah, just the stories of pain. But to see how so many of them already are speaking out of the moments they've had with God in the midst of that suffering and helping others, just as 2 Corinthians chapter 1 says that He gives us Help in our afflictions that we can help others. God wastes nothing. Plead with God to help you to, to have wisdom of how you might be able to use the pain and suffering that's been entrusted to you to steward to help others. I can't speak for everybody in this room. I know Heather and Catherine, who are two dear sisters in our congregation. They did that wonderfully for us. Matt ministered to many people in our congregation. I just encourage you, those sorts of brothers and sisters. God wastes nothing. I also want to be really clear about something. Sometimes it can be easy to read this and to think, oh, so God just blessed Job and Job's supposed to just forget, forget all his kids that happened before? This text does not imply that. And I certainly don't think that we should read it that way. It doesn't mean that Job never thought of them. 
it doesn't mean that Job never still wept over them. Just because God resolves a suffering and moves into a new season doesn't mean that there are still not wells of grief that you're always trying to figure out how to navigate. I'm sure Job pulled out those pictures and looked at the old family photos and shed a tear and said, God, I miss them a lot. That's not a lack of faith. It is faith because you're talking to God. I think it's also important to notice here when these blessings happen. He blesses, he blesses him. He does all of this for Job after he repents. Job's devotion to the Lord here isn't dependent on the material blessings that God gave him. It's not like God blessed Job with a whole bunch of stuff and then Job says, all right, you're pretty good after all, I'll worship you again. That's not how it works. Job repented and then God blessed him. Just like in chapter 1, Job doesn't worship God because God gives him stuff. Job worships God because God gives Job himself. God was Job's greatest treasure. You see, when Job repented, he had no certainty that God would give him one more cow, one more donkey, one more friend, one more child than he had when he was sitting there with nothing on that ash heap. But he knew that if he got God, it was going to be okay. Which I love it. Doesn't say it, but everybody who reads the book knows it. He just stuck it to Satan again. Who the whole time had been saying, the only reason Job worships you is you can put a silver spoon in his mouth. Of course he worships you. All you do is bless him. Here Job sits. Too poor to even have, he, oh, he had a spork. He barely, you know, was, was, you're so poor, you have like half, for, uh, half fork, half spork, or spoon, you know. It's like, it's like he has got nothing. And he says, but I've got God. Showing Satan is wrong again. God is actually worthy of worship. He doesn't need to buy his worshipers. If you're one of a book that shoots the prosperity gospel in the mouth, the book of Job does it. No. God doesn't need to buy worshipers. He's worthy of worship regardless, even when he takes everything away. This, of course, all foreshadows <laughs> the greater story. The book of Job, in many ways, foreshadows the grand story of what God is doing in history. The book of Job begins in a seemingly perfect world, doesn't it? Where Job knew nothing but God's blessing and fellowship with loved ones, and he and God were friends. And then Satan came on the scene by the permission of God, and he brings great pain into Job's world. And what follows is a confusing, swirling history of tears and pain and confusion mixed with lies and, 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 and truth. And then God enters in, and he speaks, and his words give life to Job. And Job is raised up to new life, reconciled with God, and commissioned to minister to others, calling them to repent and pointing to a saving sacrifice. And then finally, Job is brought into a new world. And there his eyes see God's face and sees all the scars of days gone by, not forgotten, but filled with grace which fuels thankfulness and joy forevermore. 
Friends, when you get to glory, you will not forget about everything that happened in this life. It's not meaningless. The psalmist says we will thank God forever. Why? Because we will look back at how faithful he was in the midst of all of the things that we couldn't understand and the things we did. And it will fuel thankfulness to him forevermore when he takes us into a land that sounds like this. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who is seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. And he said, Write these words down, for they are trustworthy and true. The reason that promise from the book of Revelation is written down is so that we can look at it time and time and time again and say, I know where God's taking us. It's the same reason that God had the book of Job written down for us so that we could spend a few moments in it on a Sunday morning and consider what God did to Job. And I want to assure you this. In between those two worlds, the world of Job and the world to come, is Christ himself. And I can promise you that if God can use the greatest evil in human history, the torturing to death of the Son of God, as the greatest good in history, to be able to extend grace to sinners like you and me to reconcile us with our God, I promise you, God can take any suffering that you are enduring in this life and he will work it for good. River City Baptist Church, I don't know what is ahead other than glory. I'm sure there's suffering along the way. Lock arms with one another. You need one another to lift eyes, to look to Jesus who's ever faithful. And don't give up. We're almost home. We're almost home. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the book of Job and the way that it points us to Jesus. God, I pray that you would meet each of us where we are this morning. You know the secret sufferings that are in this room. Lord, you know the, the providential ways that you'll use your word. We pray that you would. We pray that not a, a word would return void. We pray that the evil one would not snatch up even a seed that scattered upon hearts this morning. We pray you would keep him at bay. We pray that you would give us soft, tender hearts. I pray for those who are struggling to trust that you are good, especially good to them. Would you assure them by showing them the goodness of Jesus? Oh, Father, we long for the day that we will sin no more and suffer no more and shed tears no more. Between now and then, would you use your word to sustain us? Help us to lean into Jesus together. We pray in his name. Amen.